Hello everyone and welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host Tyler Rouse. I know I had mentioned covering Dr. Laurie in the previous episode, but when I started to do the research I realized there's a lot to cover. I didn't have enough time to dedicate to cover him properly, so that'll go on the back burner for now. But in the meantime, I was inspired by a recent case in our hospital of a perforated duodenal ulcer, which the surgeon repaired using a gram patch. This colleague mentioned to me that it was named after a surgeon from the area, so my curiosity was piqued. This led to today's episode, where we'll take a look at the surgeon behind a simple but elegant surgical solution to a common problem, and learn about some of his other contributions to medicine in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Roscoe Reed Graham was born January 2nd, 1890 in Lobo, Ontario, Canada. This is a small farming community outside of London, Ontario, and in an odd coincidence, the location of my uncle's farm. Graham's father was a country physician, and he followed his footsteps, as did his two brothers, and went to medical school at the University of Toronto, graduating in 1910 at the age of 20. After a year at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto, he, like many surgeons of the time, went abroad for additional training, working at St. Bartholomew's in London, England, which itself has an interesting history. St. Bart's was founded in 1123 and is one of the longest continuously operating hospitals in England. It was actually threatened with closure in 1993, but was rescued by a Save Bart's campaign, which some of my British listeners might remember. Graham also worked in hospitals in Edinburgh, Vienna, and Bern. And again, like other surgeons of his time, he was pulled into the quagmire that was World War I, being recruited by the Royal Canadian Medical Corps. Graham served as a captain with the No. 4 General Hospital in London, England. Alright, we got the basic biographical information covered, so let's get to his career. Graham spent all of it at the Toronto General Hospital, eventually becoming the head of the first surgical division, and although he had many successes, we can focus on three areas. The removal of the first insulinoma, the development of a surgical treatment for duodenal ulcers, and his work on rectal prolapse. So let's start with the insulinoma. For those not familiar, an insulinoma is a tumor in the pancreas that arises from the islet cells that produce insulin. Now most are benign, but produce excess amounts of insulin which causes the usual symptoms of low blood sugar. A quick aside here, the timing of this is interesting and there are some neat connections. The case we're going to cover happened in 1929. Insulin was discovered, in Toronto, by Banting and Best from experiments that began in the summer of 1921. Just two years later, the Nobel Prize was awarded to Banting, but not Best. My next podcast will be covering surgeons that have won the Nobel Prize, and since Banting was a surgeon, I'll go into more detail then. So on to the case. The patient was a 54-year-old female lawyer that presented with a six-year history of convulsions and comas. The key to the diagnosis was that she found that food, particularly candy, was partially effective in aborting the attacks. But the diagnosis was not made before extensive testing, including a psychiatric consultation to exclude hysteria. Remember, this is 1929. Now, at this time, little pancreatic surgery had been done, and no insulinoma had ever been resected before. But preoperatively, Graham wrote that he was prepared to resect a portion of the pancreas if a tumor wasn't found at surgery. Unfortunately, a tumor was found and removed, and the surfaces of the pancreas were approximated and covered with a free omental patch, which is a bit of a foreshadowing to the next part of our story. Amazingly, the patient was documented as being in good health with no recurrences of symptoms until her death 23 years later after the surgery. Graham, for reasons lost to the mists of time, did not write a case report and was not initially recognized in the literature for performing this historical operation. So the next topic, 
is the procedure that would take on his name, the Graham Patch. This was created to treat duodenal ulcers, and there's a good backstory about duodenal ulcers that's worth taking a minute to cover. Plus, there's another Nobel Prize story too. Duodenal ulcers are often classified along with gastric meaning stomach ulcers as peptic ulcers, and peptic comes from the Greek word peptikos, meaning able to digest. These may cause bleeding or even perforation, meaning a hole develops in these organs. Now, the first recorded description of a perforated peptic ulcer was in 1670 in Princess Henrietta of England. But peptic ulcers have been around for much longer than that, and as we now know, many are caused by a bacterial infection called Helicobacter pylori. But when Graham was practicing, this was not known. In fact, the bacteria wasn't discovered until the late 20th century by Barry Marshall and Robin Warren, for which they received the Nobel Prize in 2005. Let's take a few moments to hear their story. Robin Warren was a pathologist working in Perth, Australia, when he noticed curved bacteria and biopsies of a patient's stomach with dyspepsia in 1979. Two years later, he met an internal medicine resident named Barry Marshall, who was looking for a project to do in his third year of training. He had Marshall look at patient records of those with this strange bacteria, and they realized that there was a connection with peptic ulcers. They proposed that the bacteria were causing the disease. Interestingly, bacteria had been found in the stomach at different times since 1875, but no one was able to culture them, so it was forgotten. The conventional thinking was that bacteria could not survive in the acidic environment of the stomach, and that peptic ulcers were caused by stress and spicy foods. Now, without proof, their hypothesis was initially rejected and called preposterous. Not helping the matter was that they could not culture the bacteria. That is, until a fortunate event in 1982, when the 35th attempt at culturing it was left incubating for five days over the Easter holiday. Now, normally, if no growth occurred after two days, the culture was thrown out. But after the weekend, a culture was found. And that reminds me of the story of another accidental discovery that led to a Nobel Prize, Alexander Fleming's discovery of penicillin. He had left cultures stacked in his lab before spending the month of August on holiday. When he got back, the fungus was, that produces penicillin was growing in one of the cultures and had wiped out the bacteria around it. Fleming, along with two others, was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1945 for his work on penicillin. So the next step for Marshall and Warren was to create an animal model for their bacteria. There was only one problem. It only grew in primates, and so their rat models failed. In desperation to prove their theory, Warren did the unthinkable. He drank a pure culture of the bacteria, intentionally infecting himself. He, not surprisingly, developed symptoms, and then had his stomach biopsied showing the bacteria growing in a background of inflammation. They finally showed this bacteria, called Helicobacter pylori, caused peptic ulcers. Now, side note, the name comes from the Greek helix, meaning twisted or spiral, and bacterion, which actually means small stuff. The pylori comes from pylorus, the outlet of the stomach to the small bowel, which comes from the Greek pulurus, meaning gatekeeper. Anyways, you'd think this part of the story would be followed by a rapid revolution in the treatment of peptic ulcers, as the bacteria were early on shown to be sensitive to antibiotics. And unfortunately, this follows the same pattern we've seen over and over again, where tenacious physicians have to doggedly pursue their discovery despite the entrenched resistance of the medical establishment, with it taking years for a revolutionary treatment to be accepted. Marshall and Warren's work was eventually recognized and accepted, and the two shared the Nobel Prize in 2005 for their discovery. So what does all this have to do with Graham? We have to travel back in time to 1937 when he published his classic manuscript reporting on 51 cases in the journal called Surgery, Gynecology, and Obstetrics, in the paper entitled, quote, The Treatment of Perforated Duodenal Ulcers, end quote, where he describes his simple but elegant treatment of perforated duodenal ulcer with an omental patch. Quote, 
The procedure that we used could not be more simple. Three interrupted catgut suture are used. One is placed at the top, one in the middle, and one at the bottom of the perforation. A piece of momentum, either free or attached, is laid over these sutures, which are then tied just sufficiently tight to hold the omental graft in situ, meaning in place, but not with sufficient force to cause the sutures to cut out, even in the most edematous, indurated ulcer. The formation of fibrin produces the real closure. The free omental graft provides the stimulus and the scaffolding for this formation, end quote. Now I'll post some pictures on Twitter and Facebook, but the basic idea is well described there. I'll just add that the omentum is basically an apron-like fold of the lining of the abdominal cavity made mostly of fat that hangs off the bottom of the stomach. Now this procedure described almost 100 years ago is still in use today for the same disease process. Now that is some staying power. So Graham's final contribution I will describe briefly, and this was his work on rectal prolapse, which is when part or all of the wall of the rectum slides out of place. Now this can occur for a number of reasons and can have varying degrees of severity. Graham's last major publication was called, quote, The Operative Repair of Massive Rectal Prolapse, end quote, published in 1948 in the Annals of Surgery, which amazingly is available online. In it, he described rectal prolapse as basically a sliding hernia and devised a method to repair it surgically called a levatoroplasty after the muscles called the levator ani that form part of the pelvic floor, which is still used in more complicated cases to this day. A fun fact about the levator ani muscles they're responsible for wagging the tail in so-called tailed quadrupeds. And humans, their job is to support the organs of the pelvic cavity, as you might guess by the name. Graham was well-respected during his life and received many awards and accolades and worked as editor of surgical journals and author of chapters in surgical textbooks. I won't bore you by going into detail, but I'll mention that he was nominated second vice president of the American Surgical Association at a time when Alan O. Whipple was president. Now that name may mean something to some of you, as he is the surgeon who devised the Whipple surgery, used to remove cancers from the head of the pancreas, and interestingly, he also described the diagnostic criteria for an insulinoma called Whipple's triad, consisting of symptoms of hypoglycemia, meaning low blood sugar, such as decreased consciousness, confusion and shakiness, etc., low glucose in the blood, and relief of symptoms when the glucose is raised back to normal. And of course, as always, I'll promise to get back to him at some point. Now, Graham died suddenly of a coronary thrombosis, also called a heart attack, on January 17th of 1948 at the age of only 58 while skiing in Collingwood, a popular winter resort in Ontario. He's buried at Mount Pleasant Cemetery in Toronto, Ontario. Now, interestingly, the cemetery was created in 1876 to be open to all citizens regardless of religious denomination, as the only authorized cemeteries in the city at that point were open just to members of either the Roman Catholic Church or Church of England. Dr. Roscoe Reed Graham is also remembered through a Surgical Sciences Scholarship in his name at the Department of Surgery at the University of Toronto, set up by his wife Beatrice in 1959. So that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Now coming up soon, October 3rd to be exact, the winner of the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for this year will be announced. I thought it'd be fun to take a look back at previous Nobel Prize winning surgeons, of which there are a few. So watch for that episode in two weeks. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a comment there or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes, and as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>